Hello everyone, and welcome to another installment of Podcast 360. I'm your moderator, Amanda Balby, with Consultant 360. The VEATH Symposium took place from November 16th to 20th this year, and included various educational sessions. One such session, titled Safe Anticoagulation in FB EVAR patients requiring spinal fluid drainage, was presented by Dr. Afshin Asadian, who is a vascular surgeon and the head of the Department of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery at Clinic Otterkring in Vienna, Austria. He joins us today to shed light on his session. To begin, can you give us a brief overview of your session and the research you presented? So I'll just give you some brief ideas about the background of what the therapy means and what the complications of the therapy could mean. During thoracoabdominal repair of the aorta, so this is the largest vessel in the human body, and we're treating uh, enlargements of the aorta, which can rupture and they inevitably cause death in patients. In the therapy we are talking about in our in the endovascular therapy, we'll line the, the, the aorta on, from the inside and exclude the enlarged artery so that there's no further pressure on the artery and it cannot rupture. There are a couple of complications going with it. And one of the worst of these complications, obviously, is that uh, due to the coverage of the aorta, you can also cover the arteries which do perfuse the spinal cord. So if you cover those and the spinal cord doesn't get enough blood, you can end up with uh, paraplegia, terrible for your quality of life. There are a couple of strategies which are aimed to prevent and which can prevent these spinal cord ischemias. So this is one of the worst complications, but this is one of many complications. Another complication is that these you will connect big branches which take off the aorta, like the renal arteries or the arteries that perfuse the gut, the pancreas, the liver. You will connect those with little stents to the big stent so that they are still perfused. And the problem of these connections is that they need some anticoagulation in order to stay patent so that the blood flow is continued and there is no closure. Actually, being able to guarantee that, you have to be quite aggressive in blood thinning measures. So you will have to give different sorts of blood thinners, uh, either heparin or drugs which are focused on platelet activation, like aspirin, for instance. Now, the problem is that these medications can produce complications with one of the most important measures preventing spinal cord ischemia. And this measure is a catheter, which is placed in the spinal area. And if the pressure of the fluid in which the spinal cord is swimming in, if this pressure is going up, you will drain the fluid and decrease the pressure. And by doing so, you will increase the blood flow within the spinal cord. But putting this catheter in can in itself cause bleeding. And the bleeding will cause a hematoma, which will then compress the spinal cord and in itself cause paraplegia. So the cure can become the threat itself. And one of the complications or one of the scenarios that can lead to spinal cord hematoma is aggressive anticoagulation. So if you're thinning the blood of the patient, this can cause the hematoma. And that's exactly the problem we're having here, that you don't want to be too aggressive. 
for the spinal cord, but you want to be aggressive enough in order to have perfusion of the visceral arteries. Otherwise, again, the patient would die. So that doesn't really help. And that was the, in a nutshell, or it's a big nutshell, but in a nutshell, the, the, the background of our study that we sat together with our anesthesiologist and discussed the possibilities of spinal cord drainage and anticoagulation. There is a set of national and international guidelines which give us actually a very tight area of movement. So it's not a lot of things we can really do. Uh, we had one scenario where we did not aggressively anticoagulate the patient and one of the renal arteries went down. So we had a thrombosis, the patient had thrombosis and the patient lost his renal artery. And so that led us to the idea that we should be a little bit more aggressive. And that's what we did sort of as a next step. So we had a, a set of roughly 40 patients where we had a very clear recording of anticoagulation, spinal catheter drainage and stuff like that. And then we changed our anticoagulation management. Uh, we added at the end of the operation an intravenous dose of aspirin. And here comes the narrow area where we can actually move a little bit. So if you give the aspirin, the first instance you can remove the CSF drainage would be 48 hours after the dose of aspirin. We know that aspirin is active for a, around 100 hours in the human body because it, it, it um, a that lives around 120 hours and the aspirin does um, decrease the reactivity of the platelet for its lifetime. So it takes a time until they replenish. So after 120 hours, your whole platelets are replenished or they have, have, uh, you have a new set of platelets in your body. But with the aspirin once given, around four days, you can still measure that you have a, a relevant decrease of your platelet activity. So we have this window of 48 hours to 96 hours where you still have your decreased plated activity. So for the branched vessels, you have a better chance of them not going down. And again, on the side of the, of the spinal cord drainage, you can take it out without the bleeding complication causing a hematoma, which can in itself cause the paraplegia. And the aim was to see whether the set of these patients with and without aspirin had similar outcomes and uh, again in a nutshell no there was no outcome difference so we had no what was the most important thing we had no hematoma in the, in the spinal cord and we just had one case of paraplegia over the whole patient group so that's 1.3 percent which is very very low in patients with abdominal aortic repair well that is a lot, a lot of good information what patients qualify for the vascular surgery, number one? And then is aspirin part of the regimen before or after surgery based on your study results? Well, we have two options of treating these, but actually three options to be, to be inclusive. We can only give them medication because the risk of operation is too high. That would be option number one. Option number two would be open surgery. There's still a set of patients which is certainly better off with open surgery than with endo procedures. And option number three would be endovascular procedures, which are becoming more and more prevalent because open surgery 
uh, is is very complex. Uh, you need a lot of experience on everyone's hand. It's not only the surgeon; it's the whole team, it's the anesthesiology team. So it's 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 a big group of people who have been who have to be skilled. And these centers are getting fewer and fewer. Also, patients demand because they want to have less invasive procedures. That's one thing. We have to really thoroughly look into patients, into their compliance, into their health state, into their anatomy. And then, only then, we would decide to have a certain proportion going for surgery, for endovascular procedures. Antiplatelet therapy is a backbone of vascular medicine because it's proven that clopidogrel or aspirin or other antibiotic agents, antiplatelet agents, increase the risk of myocardial infarction, stroke, peripheral vascular events. Most importantly, if you've had a stent, for instance, a coronary artery stent, you need to be on antiplatelets because the risk of these stents going down, including and causing a even fatal myocardial infarction, is, is, is rather high. Closer to the operation, the stent is, let's say the stent has been implanted 10 years ago. This is a different story. This is a sort of very stable chronic situation. It's totally different to a stent which has been implanted, let's say, four weeks ago. So these patients need to be usually even on two different antiplatelet agents, and that would preclude the spinal fluid drainage. Because that's also in the guidelines, if you are on any kind of antithrombotic therapy, you shall not put in a, a drainage because, again, this can cause a hematoma, and that itself can cause a paraplegic event. And that's the reason why not all of our patients are included in this study, because a rather chunky proportion of them was an antithrombotics. And after discussion with cardiologists, we were not taking them off the antithrombotics because the risk of having relevant cardiac events was too high. And long-term after the operation, patients are on antithrombotics. So they will have a dual antiplatelet therapy after the implant for six weeks, and then lifelong either aspirin or clopidogrel or any uh, other antithrombotics. Um, you mentioned before also working on more research to kind of build on this study. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, what you're working on next? I mean, there, there are many things going on. So in, in the past, before the endovascular era, there was one artery which was thought to be the one providing the spinal cord with blood. That was the artery of Adam Kiewicz. So everyone was, was really sort of nerdy about this artery. But patients with progressive disease have a different blood supply. And we've, we've seen that patients with large aneurysms, they have thrombosis of the arterial wall, and there are actually no arteries going off, uh, even where the Adamkevich has to be. There is no Adamkevich, and the patient is still around and walking. So why is that? Um, so a new concept has arisen, and that's the collateral network. So there's many, many different arteries, and they're building a, a, a net a delta of arteries which then get together and, and, and provide blood to the spinal cord. We have seen that you can even build this collateral network. So one set of research is now on occluding these arteries slowly, step by step, so that the network from above and below is providing the blood. So actually where you have the healthy aorta and then the bit in between, you can replace without risk for, for paraplegia. That's one idea, but we also know that there's um, a whole 
area of interest of inflammation that is also very important in uh, in playing a role in causing fluid shifts, for instance. So um, you have to imagine that these big operations, even though they're just small incisions and you do everything with catheters, they have a huge impact on the equilibrium in the human body. And this will cause an inflammatory burst in these patients. And this inflammation will cause many, many different things. It will be pro-coagulant. It will make the endothelium leaky. So the inner lining of the arteries, which actually get leaky, so that fluid gets into the tissue. And by doing so, you will compress other arteries and decrease blood flow. It's very complex. But at the end of the day, inflammation in a big operation is a problem. What we are interested in is to look into the inflammatory process and see whether we can prevent it happening or if we cannot prevent it, if we can dampen it or if we can get it into an area where it is causing less of a problem for our patients. So on the first side, it doesn't really have much to do with, with anticoagulation, but the inflammation has also an influence on many other things where we could possibly modulate very positively this scenario for our patients. That's interesting. And like you said, very complex. So what is the importance of a multidisciplinary approach in managing these complex patients? So I think that the most important thing is that you're open and that you understand that uh, other people know more than you. Then, of course, there's basic scientists, nerds, who have nothing to do with patients, who are just sitting on one molecule and play around with one molecule. You know, you have to go to more simple minds like surgeons who just see what, what actually the outcome is. And we have to share our knowledge and our experience and work together on improving things. And we all have our different sets and our different standpoints. And I think that's make, that makes it so interesting to, to work with people who are also not physicians because they have a total totally different view of what's going on and how things should work and how they do work. And that really helps us with improving. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great point. Thank you so much for speaking with me about your research today. Thank you very much for giving me the time and the opportunity.